Amen. Oh, man. What an amazing... I, I think we... Pastor Ryan introduced that song to us last week for the first time, and uh, it's, it's such a strong... Uh, man, I feel like I say the same thing every week, which I guess is just um, affirmation that what an amazing job Pastor Ryan does. But um, it's such a strong, such a strong song, I think. And last week when he posted that link for us to listen, become familiar with the songs, that was the first time I'd ever heard that song. And um, it's been going through my head ever since. And I'm so glad that we sang it again this morning because it's, what a, as, as Pastor Ryan said, what a beautiful picture of a rock. And the rock never moves. Now we move, but the rock never moves. And so what a, what a blessing. What a, what a, it's hard for me to follow in those footsteps. Um, before we get into the message, I really am so excited about this next year. Um, I was praying with Pastor Ryan earlier. And I told him right before we started praying that I really believe that, that God has big things in store for us in 2014. And, um, I, and part of that, I, I, one, of the, one of the areas that, that, um, I, that God's really impressed upon my heart for us to begin to, to look and develop is this area of small groups. Um, why I think 2014 will be a big year for Redemption Hill is I think we'll begin to see this transformation or, or transition from being um, what some may feel as kind of a Sunday morning only worship church into becoming a more full um, daily involved church. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to unleash 50 different programs and all these different things, but, but I, I believe that, that one area that God will, will use in the life of Redemption Hill for us individually and corporately to grow is going to be through some type of small group ministry. And, and, and with that, our, our first kind of attempts, our first um, leap into small groups is, is as, you, as you've seen, is with our men's and women's ministries that have, have either begun or in the process of beginning. Um, so the women had their kickoff last week and have their Bible study starting up towards the end of this month. The, the men have our kickoff towards the end of this month, and then we will start our Bible study in February. And I just really believe that it's when we begin to get into smaller groups. And we're not, obviously, we're not a mega church, and there's not thousands of us here. But, but whenever you can take a larger group and break it into smaller groups, I really believe that God begins to work in us um, it, he begins to um, reveal different things to us. It's a great opportunity for you to, to, to not only make connections with God, but also make connections with each other. And uh, we begin to put roots into to this. And um, I think the formats of small groups where you have a chance to kind of share and talk and pray, it, just, it, it can be very, very strong in our individual walks. And so I'm really looking forward to, to, to seeing how, what God does in the, in the women's ministry and the men's ministry. I know last week uh, Pastor Ryan met with... Um, Miss AK and uh, Miss Becky, and they spent some time working on some um, youth activities coming up. And so I know in February, I believe, we have a, a youth weekend retreat that's going to be uh, powerful. It's going to be a great opportunity for them. And so God's just really working, and he's, he's beginning to do a lot of different things that I think um, that we'll, we'll, we'll see some, some positive things come this year. So, so continue to pray for us as we take these steps and as God um, shows us where to, to go and what we should do and all that kind of good stuff. Um, that we remain faithful to him. And at the end of it all, in anything we do, we always want Christ to be the center of it, okay? Um, doesn't mean we won't have fun activities. Uh, Matt Caldwell's going to help. Um, he's going to lead a softball team for the guys. 
And, and so for any of you guys who are interested in softball, we're come this spring, we'll have a softball team. That, that'll be good. It'll be fun. Um, and it's not like Matt's going to be um, preaching before every softball game. But even, even those fun ministries, those fun things like softball, we want to use as uh, an opportunity for outreach, an opportunity for us to, to display um, Christ-centered lives um, in our church and in us as individuals. So, so a lot going on. Buckle up, guys. I keep saying buckle up. 2014 is going to go by quickly, but I, I believe God will use it immensely for our church. So if you have your Bibles this morning, please open up to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we're going to look at the first 15 verses in this passage of John chapter 3. Uh, for, for many of us, this is a familiar text. Next week we will discuss, part of the, the, the lesson will be on what I personally believe is one of the most impactful, most powerful, if not the most powerful verse in all the Bible, John 3.16. We see the sign up at all the different football games and sporting events and things like that. And so we're all familiar with John 3.16. This morning we're going to look at the passage leading up to that powerful passage, uh, that powerful verse. And a very interesting conversation takes place here, a meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus. So we're going to look at the first 15 verses. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the cool air. We thank you for the warm hearts. And God, I ask that if we dissect this passage and we dig into it, Lord, that you help um, soften our hearts, open our ears and our minds. Help us to receive your word, Lord. Uh, your, your word promises that it will not return void. And so as we proclaim your gospel, as we focus on your word, we know that there will be fruit. Um, God, I, I ask that you allow me to be a vessel for you this morning, that the Holy Spirit works in and through me, that you give me your words, your thoughts, that we see a great thing done this morning. It's in your son's beautiful and precious name that we pray. Amen. All right, so John chapter 3, verse, verses 1 through 15. Um, it's interesting, for those who like history, you are familiar with Benjamin Franklin. We know a lot of the impact that he had on the um, political aspect of our country, we also know the stories of his um, knowledge in inventing different things with the spectacles and the electricity and all that kind of stuff. One of the other things that, that Benjamin Franklin was known for was correspondence, with writing letters. And he would correspond with people. And, and he was so well at it, did so well at it, that he began to correspond with people, not just here within the United States, but worldwide. One day he receives a letter from a, a person who would become a, a very close friend of his, George Whitfield, who at that time was a very well-known preacher of the day. Um, one of the, the individuals that would have a tremendous impact on a revival that would take place called the Great Awakening. And in this letter, George Whitfield expresses to Benjamin Franklin, he says, I, I, I see you've become very learned in all this science, and you've grown very famous I would challenge you to study one thing, the new birth. It will repay tenfold. That new birth. Benjamin Franklin, a man that we know in history as, as being an individual who is obviously very, very smart. And as smart as he was, he was missing something. And his friend, George Whitfield, challenges him to study the new birth. This morning we have somewhat of a similar interaction with Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus 
an incredibly smart man. But the head knowledge didn't become heart knowledge until towards the end of this passage. So let's begin here. John 3, 1 says, Now these, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. We see very early on that this Nicodemus was not a regular Joe. We see in this first verse or two, and then later on in the passage, we can quickly point out there was three things that, that can kind of identify Nicodemus. Okay, he was religious. He was rich. And he was a ruler. Okay, so when we see this in the very part beginning here, at the very beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, it says, a man of the Pharisees. Okay, the Pharisees, we read about the Pharisees all throughout the New Testament. Okay, a, a very devout group. Now, often Jesus has very few good things to say about Pharisees. We have to be careful to, to, to not read too much into that in saying that every single Pharisee was a hypocrite. That wasn't necessarily the case. But these Pharisees, these were, were individuals who, who were really, really smart. They would, they would memorize massive amounts of Old Testament Scripture. The problem becoming that they would take these, the law of Moses and they would begin to add all these rules on top of this and began to go out of control to the point where um, we read in Exodus about keeping the Sabbath, right? A day of rest. They had in their oral traditions of that day, they began to make all these rules. Once this oral tradition was placed into a written form, there were 24 chapters on how to keep the Sabbath a day of rest. That's insane, 24 chapters. The Pharisees, uh, we don't know exactly where the, the birth of this Pharisee came from, but most believe that it began with, the, the deep roots began with Daniel and his three buddies. And if you remember the story of Daniel, Daniel um, and, his, and, his fr- and his friends, they were taken captive and you guys remember the story where, where they, they, were, they, they were trying to, the, the people wanted them to eat the king's food. And Daniel and his friends objected. They wanted to eat beans. Well, some of that begins to, and then later on in uh, Daniel chapter 3, we read the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You guys remember where they, they're supposed to worship the God and worship the king as a God? And they reject that. They won't do that. And the result was them being thrown into a furnace. And so some believe that this Pharisee goes back all the way to Daniel and his friends. Now this original, Daniel's deciding factor in why he would not involve himself in those things, part of it was just a sense of nationalism. He wanted to remember his roots. They had been taken away from their their home, their families. And the one thing they were trying to hold on to was was their family, their their roots, this, this law of Moses. Some 600 years later, it had taken an entire life of its own on. And they'd created such a, 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 a massive amount of rules and regulations that they no longer sought God. They found their comfort in keeping rules. And so we know that, that first that, that Nicodemus was absolutely a religious man because he was a Pharisee. 
We also see that he was um, a ruler of the Jews. A ruler of the Jews. That passage right there would, would lead us to believe that he was part of the Sanhedrin. During this day, we read about the Sanhedrin again throughout a lot of the Gospels. And the Sanhedrin had, was a member, there was a board of like 70 men. These were the leaders of the Pharisees. It would be like what we would consider today to be something like a parliament-type Congress meshed with a Supreme Court. During this time, the Roman Empire is controlling Israel and, and, and this area. And they, have, they don't no longer have their own king anymore, like we read about in the Old Testament. There were these foreign governors and, and dignitaries, but they would find their council in the Sanhedrin. And so we have Nicodemus, who's a religious man, but he's also a leader within this nation of Israel. We also believe that he was very well off reading the scripture in John chapter 19. Nicodemus would be the one that comes to the tomb of Jesus with myrrh and aloe, very expensive things. Jewish tradition, if we read Jewish tradition, it tells us that, that Nicodemus was considered one of the three most wealthiest man, men in the nation of Israel. So he's religious, he's rich, and he's a ruler. Verse 10 Jesus referred to him as the teacher of Israel. So this man, Nicodemus, he's no slump. He's no slump. He's a a very important individual within this nation. He's religious. He's smart. He's accomplished a lot in life. And we read that he comes to Jesus at night. Now, when we read that passage, when we see about Jesus, he came to Jesus at night, there's all sorts of theories. Why did Nicodemus go to Jesus at night? Was he scared to see Jesus during the day? Did he not want to be associated with Jesus? Because if you remember back in chapter 2, we see the, the happy, joyful Jesus that turns water into wine, right? Followed up with the Jesus who runs into the temple flipping tables, causing this big ruckus. So maybe he was fearful of Jesus. Maybe that's why he came in the middle of the night. It's a possibility. My heart lends towards another belief in that if we look at the time, we have to remember that these are pre-air-conditioned days, right? There's no AC. And the the homes were, were built in a manner that they had flat roofs, and it was not uncommon at night for people to gather on these rooftops and have conversations. This particular story happens during the Passover season. Nicodemus, as the teacher of the Jews, the teacher of Israel, would be pretty busy during this time teaching during the day. Jesus had not only turned water into wine, not only flipped over tables in the temple, but we read about these signs at the very end of chapter 2, these signs and wonders. And so Jesus has created this following. So more than likely, both of these men during the day were quite busy. My belief is that, that Nicodemus wanted to have an uninterrupted conversation with Jesus. Now, it could have been because he was sent as a, as a diplomat on behalf of the religious leaders. It could have been out of his own curiosity. I, I, that I don't know. But I believe it was not a fear of Jesus, but more a desire to have this uninterrupted conversation with Jesus. And so they begin with this conversation.
He had said, Rabbi, we, we know that you're a teacher come from God because uh, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I love it. See, Jesus, like, cuts straight to the bone. Like, he could have very easily said, Yeah, you've seen all my wonders, haven't you? Pretty cool, aren't they? Pretty powerful, aren't they? Like, I'm a pretty amazing guy. I can do a lot, can't I? But he cuts straight to the bone. He knows that Nicodemus is a smart man. He knows that, that Nicodemus has all this head knowledge. And so he answers him with, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is a pretty perplexing situation for Nicodemus. All his life he has been taught because he is a descendant of Abraham, because he is a Jew, he's already has his reservation in heaven. And Jesus is telling him that unless you're born again, you cannot enter heaven. It has nothing to do with who you, where you were born. It has nothing to do with your bloodlines. It has to do with this decision. Some of us can think of moments in our lives where, where we receive news that turns our life upside down. We, 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 we think everything is going right. We, we feel we put all of our trust in something all of a sudden to find out that it's not true. Um, I've heard and talked with people in the last few months and years of marriages that have broken. Marriages that have, have been in, in, in existence for, for several years. And, and, and you put your hope and your trust in this relationship and you think everything is great only to find out it's gone. What you thought was right, what you thought was, was rock solid was no more. And so we have to have some compassion here on Nicodemus because Nicodemus, his whole, he had been brought up with this belief that, that I am already going to heaven because of who I am because of being a Jew. And Jesus turns that upside down. And he says, the only way is through this being born again, this new birth that we're going to read about, that we've read about. Unless a man be born again. And he begins talking about this new birth. And, and again, we see this idea of Nicodemus being completely, completely confused. Again, mind you, sometimes me, when I read this passage, I think, this guy is a fool. Like, he must not be very smart. He's all con what it shows me is that sin can blind us. Sin can allow us to not see the full truth. Nicodemus had memorized the Old Testament. He knew all the rules. He had head knowledge. 
He knew rules. He, he did not understand truth. And so he begins saying this, this whole thing about how can, how can an old guy be born again? I mean, you're supposed to re-enter your, your mother's womb and come out again? That's, that's impossible. And so Jesus tries to explain it to him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He said, listen, things that are done in flesh, things done in your own power, in your own, in your own strength, it's only as good as you. It's tainted because of our sin. But the things done by the Spirit, the Spirit-filled person, that's pleasing to God. Sometimes we read that first passage at the beginning, it says, born of water. Unfortunately, I, 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 some take that to believe born of the water is this command here that Jesus is saying, that part of your salvation is done through baptism. Water. Okay, sometimes we can associate water baptism. and That's what, one of the things that we practice is a water baptism. That is not the case here. He's not saying that baptism is part of your ticket of salvation. We, we do baptism as a sign of obedience following Christ's example. But all throughout Scripture during this day and age... Baptism was used as a, a symbol of death, a death to our old life. Here Jesus is talking about a new life, a new birth. And so it's not about this baptism. Baptism doesn't save us. It's this idea of the Word, water, the Word, along with the Spirit. In a moment, we're going to read a passage in Ezekiel that talks about this. And, and, but let's go a little bit further here. Verse 7 says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Again, he tells Nicodemus, don't marvel. You, you, I'm telling you this stuff. Your whole, your whole scope, your whole theology, everything you've been taught since birth, I'm saying is almost rubbish. And he begins to talk about this spirit. And he uses this wind. I don't know, but I think we can speculate. They're on this rooftop, and, and, and it more than likely it was a breezy night, and as he's talking, the wind begins to blow. And Jesus says, it's like this wind. You can feel it. You can see the effects of it, but you physically can't see wind, right? We, we in Florida, experience hurricanes, right? We can see the power of the wind, can't we? We don't physically see wind, but we see the effects of the wind. If you have your Bibles, turn back to Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter uh, 37. When Jesus says, don't marvel, and he uses this expression of the wind, this passage probably came to the mind of Nicodemus. So Ezekiel chapter 37, we're going to read the first 14 verses. It's a pretty cool story. So Ezekiel chapter 37, 
verse 1, it says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and sent me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can those bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over the bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of God to thee bones, to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones became together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy on the breath, or prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as the commanded, as he commanded me, and the breath came into me, them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise them from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and shall live. And I will place you in your hand alone, or your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Do you guys see this picture, this amazing picture out there? This valley of dry bones. Very dry bones. These people have been dead for a while. God says prophesy over them. And bone will go back to bone. Muscle will come back. Skin will come back. And I'll breathe new life. New life. And so he prophesies over them. Prophesy meaning the word. He's reading the word to them. And the breath comes from the winds, which is a symbol of the Spirit. And I love this in that passage where it says, our bones were dry and our hope is lost. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, your bones are dry, your hope is lost. But just like that valley of dry bones, just like that valley where they had no hope, where they were dead, by my word and the Spirit of God, I will breathe new life into you. 
What an amazing passage. As we talked about small groups earlier, one of the things that we want to do as a church family, a faith family, is grow closer to God. One of the most, if not the most critical parts in our lives to grow closer to God is to be in His Word. It's to read His Word. To learn about Jesus, about God. It's amazing. If you've seen this, I know you have. You can begin to read God's Word and all of a sudden something unlocks. The light goes on. It's not that you're an incredibly smart person. That's the Holy Spirit revealing something to you. The excitement in our walk as Christians, as believers, of combining the Word with the Spirit. Back in John, Jesus says, Don't marvel, Nicodemus. It's, it's, it's so simple. And I almost have a sense here um, in verse 10 as Jesus goes to him. And Nicodemus in verse 9 says, um, how can these things be? Jesus says in verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand those things? Are these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive your, our testimony. This time, I believe Jesus almost has a heavy heart. He's talking to this man who knows. A smart man. Influential man. But he doesn't get it. And I see this Jesus with this heavy heart begin to say, you don't get it, Nicodemus. I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to you, but you don't receive our testimony. You trust Moses. You trust the law. But you don't believe what I say. You don't believe me. Verse 12, he says, If I had told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus says, listen, if I show you these earthly examples and you don't believe, why in the world would you believe a heavenly example? You don't trust my eyewitness. During this time, during these ancient days, eyewitness was the most important thing. This is before we had Twitter feeds. This is before CNN and Fox News and breaking news. It was based on the witness. When, when, when multiple people would and their stories would line up, that would become factual, become truth. And, and Jesus is saying, listen, you rejected John the Baptist. You Pharisees, you, you got mad at John because he was proclaiming the Messiah would come, and then he pointed to me as the Messiah. You rejected John the Baptist, you're rejecting me. 
You're not listening to our eyewitness. I'm the one, Jesus, I'm the one who descended from heaven. I could tell you heavenly things, but if you don't believe what I'm saying here, why would you believe what I would say up there? In this passage, I, I, I just can't help but see this Jesus who remains patient with this man. Using different examples, trying to show him what it all means. And he comes to this next example in verse 14 and 15. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus obviously knew Nicodemus in his background. So while we see so often in this interaction, Jesus referring to the Old Testament, using examples from the Old Testament. We read one about his, from Ezekiel. This passage, this, these two verses that we just read, he's referencing Numbers chapter 21. So again, if you have your Bibles, please go to Numbers chapter 21. And we're going to read just a couple of short verses about what John here is referencing. So, so Numbers chapter 21 Numbers chapter 21, we're going to read verses 4 through 9. It says here, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed to the people, Sorry here. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This story here, Jesus reminds Nicodemus. There's a lot of significance in that. So often when we think of serpent in the Bible, we think of sin, don't we? Going back to the garden. What's different about this particular serpent that is constructed on this pole is it's made out of bronze. Bronze during the Bible time was a symbol of judgment. This was going to be God's judgment for sin. The people had turned their backs on Moses, but beyond that they turned their backs on God. They were complaining. They sinned against God. And so God's judgment for their sin were these fiery serpents that he sent down that were biting these people and they were dying. What I love, though, is it's not just a story of judgment. It's also a story of grace. The people realized very quickly that they had sinned, that they were wrong. 
So they go back to their leader, Moses, asking for help, begging for forgiveness, asking Moses to go to God, and Moses does, and prays to God, talks to God on their behalf. And then God gives them this this way to build this pole in the serpent, to lift it up, and if anybody was bit by one of those serpents, they could look up to this brass pole, brass serpent, and they'd be healed. They'd be saved. In John three fourteen, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. When we compare those stories, we know that one day Jesus was going to be lifted up. Like that pole in the wilderness, like that serpent. And those who would look upon Jesus, those who would turn to Jesus for forgiveness, to be rescued, would be saved. Both stories, though, require faith. The people, all they had to do was look, right? And number, all they did, all, the only thing they had to do was look to the serpent, the bronze serpent, and they were saved, they were healed. But it required the faith to look, didn't it? Just like Jesus, one day, would be lifted up on a cross, and die a death for a punishment of our sins. And when we look to the cross, when we look to Jesus, and we ask Him for forgiveness, then we're saved. And He tells Nicodemus, it doesn't matter who your parents were. It doesn't matter what religious group you're a part of. It doesn't matter how many accolades you have doesn't matter how rich you are it doesn't matter how successful you are it doesn't matter none of that matters it's simply believing in him today we can often look back at people and talk with individuals, and we can think back in these passages and think, wow, how naive was Nicodemus? How blind he was? How, it doesn't make sense, a man that smart. He, he must not have really been that smart. I can't tell you how many countless conversations that I personally had, and I'm sure you have too with people when you ask about faith. They begin to tell you about the church that they're a part of about maybe mom and dad being Christians and growing up in a Christian home, grandma and grandpa. They try and give you this whole heritage as if that's why they're saved or that's how they're saved, is through this heritage. It's not. It comes down to a personal decision that we all have to make. Born again. He uses this symbol that, that, that 
we can all somewhat relate to a birth. He uses this idea of, of wind. But at the end of the day, when he talks about the wind, he tells Nicodemus, there are some things that we just accept through faith. We accept wind knowing that we can't predict it, but we see the effects of it, so we know it's there. And the same comes with Jesus. I can't tell you this morning if, if, if those who want to accept Christ their Savior, if you come forward, um, Jesus is going to be right here at the front altar for you to shake hands with. You're not going to physically, with your own two eyes, see Jesus. But I can tell you, you'll see the effects of Jesus. You'll see the impact of Jesus. The results of Jesus. It's so simple. Salvation. Jesus made it so simple. He did all the work for us. All the work for us. It just comes down to whether we accept or reject, whether we believe or not. We believe we get a life, eternal life in heaven with Jesus. Let's pray.